The Beatles are a pretty nice band, and we've got a lot to say. The Beatles are a pretty nice band, talk about them day after day. But we also love the outfit a lot, so are these songs better than your love? The Beatles are a pretty nice band, someday we'll judge if they're fine, oh yeah. Someday we'll judge if they're fine. A day in the life. I'd love to turn you on, Andrew. Oh, hey now, yeah. Roger. So, yeah, look, the, either this or Strawberry Fields Forever, it's my favorite Beatles song, you know. It, it's an epic told in just five minutes. Cultural touchstone. The ideals of the 1960s didn't really make it, except for what Ian McDonald called the revolution in the head. That's the title of his Beatles book. Where what we now call mindfulness was practiced by enlightened folks in Western culture during that decade. That's what I interpret I Love to Turn You On as. It's not written in the newspaper along with car crashes and Philly potholes what is most important, finding your inner truth. The instrumental glissando freakout and the piano chord at the end is really impactful, no matter how many times you hear it. The ah section is gorgeous. John and Paul combined bits of songs together before and after this, but it never worked as well as it did here. Um, and I think the fact that A Day in the Life is on Sgt. Pepper is probably why it's considered the all-time best album. I agree completely. Like, if you put me on the spot and ask me what my favorite Beatles song is, I would say it's this one. Like, I simply just don't get tired of it. Like, no matter how many times I've heard it, there's, like, always a new flourish to just appreciate or something I just didn't notice before because it's just a very dense song. <laughs> I mean, Pepper was the only Beatles song in my house when I was growing up. Uh, and I remember when I got to this song, when I was listening to it, I just kept putting the needle back to, to re-listen to it over and over and over again. Uh, because the record never ended because of the locked groove and just keep going. We had one of those like automatic turntables where once you get to the end, it would just, so it always enabled me to just keep going back and listening to it. Um, it's easily the best closing track on a Beatles album too. Right. And like, I think your hypothesis is entirely correct. This track is probably why it's considered the greatest album of all time, because you ended on like such a high, where do you go from there? And it, you know, makes up for, songs you don't really like mm. that come or before it maybe it's a recency bias like the last track you yeah heard. sure <laughs> like it, it leaves you with 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 such a i don't know it's such a good feeling makes you want to go back mm -hmm. get back get <laughs> back so this song it was inspired by a series of disconnected events that entered john lennon's consciousness the death of millionaire socialite Tara Brown, his own appearance in Richard Lester's film How I Won the War, and a council survey that found 4,000 holes in the roads of Blackburn, Lancashire. The January 17, 1967 edition of the newspaper reported, that the cor reported the coroner's verdict into the death of Tara Brown, an Irish friend of the Beatles who on December 18, 1966 had driven his Lotus Elan at high speed through a red light in South Kensington, London, and into a stationary van. Brown was the great-grandson of the brewer Edward Cecil Guinness and the son of Lord and Lady Ornmore and Brown. 
He was in line to inherit a million-pound fortune upon his 25th birthday, but died at the age of 21. Brown was a friend of Lennon and McCartney, and had instigated McCartney's first experience with LSD. So it's a little messed up. They knew, they knew this person. Yeah. Uh, who got who was in a fatal car accident, and then they put it in a song. But yeah. Write what you know. Write what you know. John said, you know, he changed some of the details. He didn't blow his mind out, um, which is artistic license. Um, Paul McCartney said, uh, had a different interpretation. Uh, <laughs> the verse about the politician blowing his mind out in a car we wrote together, it has been attributed to Tara Brown, which I don't believe is the case. Certainly as we were writing it, I was not attributing it to Tara in my head. In John's head, it might have been. In my head, I was imagining a politician bombed out on drugs who had stopped at some traffic lights and didn't notice that the lights had changed. The blue as mine was purely a drugs reference, nothing to do with a car crash. That's funny. He's like, no, 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 it's about drugs. Please. I know this, like, they've spent this whole record denying that anything about it is drugs. <laughs> yes. But yet, yeah. no, this one is. No, it's fine. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, but in 2021, <laughs> then, McCarty said <laughs> that it was about terror. So. Which is it, Paul? I know. Uh, he, Paul said he was a nice boy. So that's, that's nice. Um. How I Won the War, it was filmed in Spain and Germany in autumn 1966. I, I saw it once. It was all right. Uh, kind of weird. Um, so the lyrics of The Data Life also alluded to the novel on which the film was based. So having read the book, that part. The middle section... Having read the book. The middle section <laughs> was an unfinished song fragment written by Paul. It was another, uh, Paul said, Paul had, I'd love to turn you on. That was his line, but he couldn't fit it anywhere. The final verse was also taken for the Daily Mail's Far and Near column. There are 4,000 holes in the road in Blackburn, Lancashire. It read, or 126th of a hole per person, according to a council survey. And John didn't have the verb. He said he, he knew it should go, now they know how many holes it takes to something the Albert Hall. And it was Brian Epstein's friend, Terry Doran, who came up with Phil. And John gave him credit for that, which is nice. Um, they had their assistant, Mal Evans, count out 24 bars for uh, After I Love to Turn You On. And you could still hear it mm -hmm. in front of a recording. And it is kind of creepy. What? Uh, so they, they kept it in. Although they probably couldn't take it out if they wanted to. I was just going to keep counting as you talked. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> no. But I want to count too. But I want to count, Dad. What, what if you did it like uh, the count from Sesame Street? But one. One. Ah, ah. Ah, ah. Two. <laughs> Paul, uh, it was Paul's idea also. To have the orchestral build-up. Forty musicians were employed. The passages were recorded four times via two synced tape machines. The first time such a feat had been achieved in a British studio. 
George Martin and McCartney conducted the orchestral glissando on February 10th. Martin supplied some basic instructions to the musicians, many of whom were from the Royal Philharmonic and London Symphony Orchestras. George Martin said at the very beginning, I put into the musical score the lowest note each instrument could play, ending with an E major chord. And at the beginning of each of the 24 bars, I put a note showing roughly where they should be at that point. Then I had to instruct them. We're going to start very, very quietly and end up very, very loud. We're to start very low in pitch and end up very high. You've got to make your own way up there, as slidey as possible, so that the clarinets slurp, trombones gliss, violins slide, without fingering any notes. And whatever you do, don't listen to the fellow next to you, because I don't want you to be doing the same thing. Of course, they all looked at me as though I was mad. Well. Yeah. <laughs> the musicians wore evening dress and fancy dress items, including red noses, bald wigs, and novelty glasses. Eric Gunberg, leader of the violins, wore a gorilla paw on his bow hand. <laughs> Friends of the Beatles, including <laughs> Mick Jagger, Marianne Faithful, Keith Richards, and Mike Nesmith, and Donovan were also present for what was intended as an event. At the end of the orchestral recording, the musicians broke into spontaneous applause. So now the mus- these professional musicians are okay with the Beatles. You know, before it was a culture clash, but now they seem to be uh, cooler about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is nice. After they left the studio, the Beatles and a number of friends attempted to record an ending for A Day in the Life. Initially, it was a hummed vocal chord taking 11 attempts to get right, which you could hear on the, uh, the box set and anthology, I believe. It's not nearly as cool as the actual ending with the, the piano chord. Right. Yes, which they recorded on February 22nd. A week before the release of the album, the BBC's director of sound broadcasting, Frank Gillard, wrote to EMI head Sir Joseph Lockwood with the news that the corporation was banning a day in the life Due to the refrain, I'd love to turn you on. The Beatles hit back at the decision with Paul McCartney telling reporters that BBC have misinterpreted the song. It has nothing to do with drug taking. <laughs> He's contradicting himself again. again. It's, only, it's only about a dream. <laughs> oh, God. John Lennon added, the laugh is that Paul and I wrote this song from a headline in a newspaper. It's about a crash and its victim. How could anyone read drugs into it is beyond me. Everyone seems to be fall, falling overboard to see the word drug in the most innocent of phrases. When Emi issued Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in Southeast Asia, A Day in the Life, with a little help from my friends and Lucy and the Skyward Diamonds, were excluded because of supposed drug references. Oh, boy. That's a much crappier album. I'd say so. <laughs> but to the BBC's credit... The song, the ban on the song was eventually lifted on March 13th, 1972. Following a day in the life uh, is a high frequency 15 kilohertz tone and some randomly spliced studio chatter. The tone is the same pitch as a dog whistle at the upper limit of human hearing, but within the range that dogs and cats can hear. This edition was part of the Beatles' humor and was suggested by John Lennon. The studio babble, titled in the session notes, edit for LPN, and recorded on April 21st, had been final, was added to the run-out groove of the initial British pressing. 
The two or three seconds of gibberish looped back into itself endlessly on any record player not equipped with an automatic phonograph arm return. Some listeners discerned words among the vocal gibberish, including Lennon saying, Been so high, followed by McCartney's response, Never could be any other way. Never could be any other way. Never could see it. U.S. copies of the album lacked the high-pitched tone and the studio babble. Sorry, America. Yeah. One of the first outsiders to hear the completed recording was David Crosby when he visited the Beatles during their overdubbing session for Lovely Rita. He recalled his reaction to the song. Man, I was a dish rag. I was floored. It took me several minutes to be able to talk after that. A dish rag. Due to the multiple takes required to perfect the orchestral cacophony and the final chord, the total time spent recording a day to life was 34 hours. By contrast, the Beatles' debut album, Please Please Be, had been recorded in its entirety in only 15 hours, 45 minutes. <laughs> Times have changed. A little bit. In 1992, Lennon's handwritten lyrics were sold by the estate of Mal Evans at auction at Sotheby's London for $100,000. The lyrics were put up for sale again in March 2006 by Bonhams in New York. Uh, the sealed bids were opened on March 7, 2006, and offers started at about $2 million. The lyric sheet was auctioned yet again by Sotheby's in June 2010. It was purchased by an anonymous American buyer who paid $1.2 million. David Bowie used the lyric, I heard the news today, oh boy, in his 1975 song, Young Americans. Sure. Lennon appeared twice on Bowie's album of the same name, providing guitar and backing vocals. Bob Dylan included the same line in his tribute song to Lennon, Roll On John, on the 2012 album Tempest. And there are two covers uh, worth mentioning. Peter Serafinowicz's version, which is hilarious. It's, uh, it's basically the song, except if Paul's part was 12 minutes long. And he just kept <laughs> talking about his... If he just kept talking about his day... And it's and they include the sound effects, you know, and and then I went to check the mail, boop, boop, you know, and uh, Neil Young did an amazing version in 2009, live with Paul McCartney, which is on a, YouTube. Yeah, yeah, it's everything you want on that one. <laughs> love count two. There are two references to love. And you know what they are. Josie Scale, I get this an enthusiastic, uh, yeah. yeah. 100%. Yeah. I love this song so much. I think it, like it's your favorite Beatles song, you'd, you'd say, Roger? Either that or, or second favorite? Strawberry Fields. Okay. Top two. Top two. Okay. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say top two for me as well. It might be number one. Never could I'm trying to think of what the other one could one. be. You never could see any other way. The Beatles are a pretty nice band. Talk about them day after day. But we also love the outfit a lot. So are these songs better than your love? The Beatles are a pretty nice band. Someday we'll judge if they're fine. Oh yeah, someday we'll judge if they're fine.